This is the Copyright 2.0 Show. My name is Jonathan Bailey, and I am not an attorney, but I am a copyright blogger at Plagiarism Today, which can be found at PlagiarismToday.com. My name is Evan Sherris, and I am an attorney. The opinions I express, however, are intended to be general commentary and are not legal advice. No attorney-client relationship is formed, nor should any such relationship be implied. If you require legal advice, please consult with an attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Copyright 2.0 Show, episode number 352. I can't think of any interesting math ones for that one, but my name is Jonathan Bailey, and joining me, as usual, attorney but not providing legal advice, Evan Sherez. Evan, how have you been? It's been a while. It's been a little while. I've been good. Um, yeah. You know, I've been uh, working and uh, trying to keep up to date with... Uh, Number of really interesting copyright stories. Yeah, uh, new Congress is coming in, so uh, you know, with every new Congress, we have the hopes for a reasonable new uh, copyright review process, and maybe even some new law to bring us, well, uh, you know, into the twenty no, uh, tens. Yeah, I'll ask you. You're there in Washington area. I am. You have your pulse on the government. <laughs> tell us what you're into. <laughs> Yeah, I can't even say that. Um, but tell tell me what you're thinking, what you're, how it looks for you, the climate with the new Congress and as far as copyright goes. You got any quick thoughts there? Uh, now that it's taken, I, now that it's been sworn in? I, I definitely do not have my finger on the pulse of Congress. Um, oh. You know, I've got uh, my finger on the pulse of all the uh, great nightlife in the area, though. So um, I think that, you know, the environment is about as good as it's been in a long time and you know a lot of the due diligence is done a lot of the review process you know foundation has been set you know you've got the commerce department you've got uh, a lot of judiciary hearings talking about copyright and so I think something is coming Um, there's a little bit more consensus in the you know various stakeholders in terms of something is going to happen but I think it's still going to take a bit of a miracle to get something together in terms of are all the stakeholders in terms of internet service providers and content producers coming together like, okay, this is something that we're not going to rally against. Even if that happens, you still have the partisan environment in which you know something completely unrelated to copyright and intellectual property can come in, you know, whether it be a Keystone pipeline veto or you know just anything could set one party or the other off. So, uh, you know, it's still it's still a gamble to, to bet on any reform coming. Yeah, and honestly, uh, two thoughts I have watching what's going on. First is I think the, to, to support your evidence that something big or something may be coming is that the uh, new um, House Judiciary Committee, normally matters of copyright are handled by a subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee. It's got one of those long 25-word names that no one can remember, including me. Um, but the House Judiciary Committee has said that the copyright reform will be handled by the House Judiciary Committee itself. So that pretty much indicates to me it's a priority for the House Judiciary to approach this and to continue its review and to make proposals. 
But um, I'm like you. I'm a little. I think we're still going to be asking for a miracle to get anything major through. And I think what if we see anything, it's going to be. I don't want to say pruning the edges, but it might be exactly that. Yeah. It, it might. It might be stuff. I mean, the areas they seem to have some consensus on is licensing, in particular, uh, when it comes to music right now. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a lot of consensus that something has to be done to simplify and streamline music licensing. And also, we seem to be seeing a lot of movement right now on um, basically the, the making um, the idea of a cable provider be technologically neutral right. to allow companies like Aereo to function, have a, have a path to legality, if you will. So those seem to be some of the areas I've been seeing a lot of. It seems like those are the tension points that might be getting addressed. I don't think we're going to see some of the bigger issues like radical DMCA reform. I don't think is going to happen right now, and I certainly don't think we're going to see like another SOPA or PIPA right now either. We're just going to. So well, it, it, there's I, still a lot of gun shy congressmen right now. For sure. Uh, I mean, uh, pure you know, uh, blocking of certain sites or overseas sites, um, you know, through injunctions probably not on the table. Um, you know. I don't think you maybe filtering uh, injunctions are off the table, which is something that uh, certain or many content owners have been asked for the right to do is that, you know, if you can prove in court that, you know, this is a site that attracts piracy, we're going to impose the obligation of setting together a filtering standard, kind of like YouTube's content ID, which is like, you need to do this. You need to, you know, at least take the very basic steps of like, you know, fingerprinting technology that is super accessible and, you know, not new technology by any stretch. And so I think that might be the height of what um, most um, content owners are going to sh- are going to are going to go for. So we'll see yeah. how if they have any luck. But uh, you know, yeah, uh, it's... regardless of whether there's legislative reform, always fun and exciting judicial. Uh, <laughs> you know, things happening, and so that changes the law just as just as effectively. Yeah. There is, is, is we're quick to point out there's two ways the law can change. One is in Congress, and the other is through case law. That's right. And interpretation. Um, so, yeah, we've got a few to talk about today. Yeah, um, we've got a lot, actually. Um, a quick rundown uh, yeah. of what we're talking about. Uh, first off, Universal Music has filed a lawsuit over mixtapes because, you know, what year is it? Is what a lot of people are going to be asking when we talk about that story. Um, Sirius XM getting blasted by the judge in New York, latest news in there. Um, for the record, we're covering everything that happened like before Christmas through the new year a little bit, so we got a long span of time we're talking about. Um, Google and a uh, state a, a state attorney general had a bit of a spat, uh, allegedly at the behest of the MPAA. That's Speaking right. of the MPAA, they have a supposedly a new plan for stopping copyright violations on the Internet, at the border, ooh, this could be interesting. Uh, Pharrell Williams has sent a strong message to YouTube: remove my songs or face another one billion dollar lawsuit. Is the, YouTube even threatened by one billion dollar lawsuits these days? Well, Does it's that it, even like register. So it's Pharrell's management group, which we talked yeah, about Pharrell, uh, a few weeks ago. Group, yeah. Global Music Rights, which represents about twenty of the biggest songwriters yeah. uh, in the business, and so it, they they collectively have a catalog of about twenty thousand songs. And if you you know do the math calculation with the average statutory damage re- reward, uh, or that, yeah. sorry the maximum which is almost yeah, never is rewarded, cool. you know times twenty thousand you come up to about that number. Yeah, it's it's but yeah I mean YouTube gets threatened with one billion dollar lawsuits with frightening regularity. Yes, this is true. 
<laughs> this is very true. Um, in New Zealand, the raid on Kim.com's mansion finally, after what is it now, we're three years later, finally ruled to have been legal. Right. And Universal and MGM disappoint the world and settle the uh, James Bond lawsuit because we don't get no case law. Uh, unfortunately, uh. there's going to be uh, a few less spy versus spy, you know, know. punny headlines in our future. I have to get him out of our system when we come to the end of the show then. Yes. Well, you want to introduce the uh, first story? So, sure. Uh, this brings us back to uh, Universal Music. And um, Universal Music has uh, sued a company that allowed the families or friends of prisoners to purchase care packages. Uh, and so, uh, in this care packages, you know, amongst... Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, no contraband, and we don't get to include any, any juicy things that was coming along with these mixtapes. But uh, well, no you know, nail files, no shivs, no, no uh, <laughs> nothing no, that interesting. Um, no, but the the, the, the most contraband-ish, which is not a word, uh, material is <laughs> <That> uh, now. <laughs> the most contrabandish material is, of course, these mixtapes, which um, I think uh, was a uh, a bit of a inaccurate way of putting it i think it's just um actually popular songs that have been remixed on these tapes not you know uh not a mixtape in the traditional sense of like i oh hey um here's 10 of my favorite songs for you these are actually remixed versions of the songs but they were sent along with these other items to prisoners and so yeah it... without permission of the uh of the copyright uh, holders, and so you've got your classic distribution and reproduction uh, violations, and so uh, we've seen a lawsuit. And yeah, this, let's go ahead. This strikes me as pretty odd. I mean, it's two companies involved, actually, Centric Group and Keefe Group, because everyone has to be named a group to be in this business. I don't know. I'm not familiar with promoting one of these services. But it's interesting because when you think of like the core things copyright protects – the right to distribute copies is pretty much at the, the core of it. it. It hits right to the heart, and especially this kind of commercial distribution. Right. And the fact that these groups were distributing these songs or remixes thereof or whatever without paying any kind of licensing fee, without any kind of agreement, seems very, very egregious to me. It seems absolutely insane. Yeah, uh, it's, you know, uh, infringement 101 without much of an argument for fair use you know it's you're packaging up somebody else's property and you're selling it um you know commercially um although i do have to uh i, I do have a bit of a of a side note with billboards uh article uh that you sent me that you know i, yeah, I think eric it's, gardner is the author i think uh you know it's kind of the irresponsible headline of the day you know which is Universal Music Files Copyright Lawsuit Over Mixtapes Sent to Prisoners, which is the, the title, which to me, when I read it, inferred that they were suing the family members and the friends of these prisoners for doing it, which is, you know, not the case. It's a commercial enterprise that's selling the service, and so I think uh, that's the kind of headline that could, uh, you know, get to the front page of Reddit really quickly, you know. Oh, poor evil music holders are suing the families of, 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 of prisoners, and that's not what's happening here. So, yeah, come on. And, and to be clear, you know, the mixtape of our youth. I mean, well, my youth. I don't know about yours. I grew up in the '80s. Mixtapes were a thing. Okay, I'm just saying they they happened. 
are technically infringements. I mean, in large respects. I mean, you're taking songs, you're making copies of them, and you're distributing them. But the thing is, they're infringements of such a small scale. I don't think anyone's yeah. ever actually been sued just no for making, sued a making a mixtape. I mean, I don't think that's ever happened. And ever, I don't think it ever will happen. I'll no, go ahead and bank on that. Not, I don't think not so. Not like, not hey, here's my ten favorite songs. Please fall in love with me, Charlene. Yeah. Um, exactly. <laughs> Please, these will show you how deep and wonderful I am. Never worked, Mr. Smith. Uh, never, never worked. Did you um, or did you not say to Charlene, with these ten songs, property of my client, to fall in love with you? you know? And did you or did you never not lead happened. it off with Journeys? Don't stop believing, <laughs> because <laughs> because you that, were clearly a loser. Well, if, if that's the case, I think then the greatest pun. I think uh, criminal sanctions are are are, are called for <laughs> no if, order. if that song is leading yes. off the mixtape. Yeah, that's not just copyright infringement; it's also probably torture. Um, there's probably some federal statute there against that. So yeah, and some I mean, uh, yeah. some some quick uh, you know legal uh, st- strategy uh, lessons here is that uh, they've asked for uh, statutory yeah. damages as opposed to uh, their other mm-hmm. option, which is actual damages uh, plus. Uh, whatever profit this infringer has made, you really have two options when you're suing in copyright. Uh, yeah. and you have to ask for them at any point before the, uh, the verdict is rendered. You can say, hey, I want my actual damages. This is how much I've lost, plus the infringer's profits, which is like, here's their accounting records. Or you can ask for statutory damages. And in this case, apparently the infringer was selling these items at a loss for some reason. And so they've asked for statutory damages so that you know, they can actually make a recovery and uh, have their... You know this 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 tor- sort yeah. of activity deterred in the future. Yeah, with actual damages, you either get the greater of what you lost or they gained, pretty much. You can do one or the other. You get to pick, but it's going to be the greatest because it's like you know, do you kick or receive? Well, <laughs> well you know, it's one of those you dumb actually get um, what you lost plus what they oh, pl- what oh, they it's plus okay plus what they received or statutory damages. Yeah. Okay. But the problem is proving what you lost in copyright is almost always impossible. Right. <laughs> Unless there's some direct relationship that you can show ooh, between their actions and a loss to you, you're right. not going to be able to prove a loss. Well, so you're pretty much stuck with what they gained. In this case, you know, you, you, you have a brick-and-mortar uh, business, so it's, it's a little easier than you know, online where you're, you know, the defendants, good luck finding them. And then if you do find them, good luck finding mm-hmm. their accounting records. So in this case... You know, you have probably a reasonable argument for like your uh, standard licensing fee for each of these tapes. So you'd be able to yeah, show that. I agree with that. And then you could add, um, you know, their profits. But the problem is, is that, you know, there's so many accounting tricks That's that nothing. go down. You know, when you, when, you, when, you, when you ask for them to produce their financial records, what you get often, you know, isn't, isn't much. Yeah, it's virtually nothing. But, my, but meanwhile, statutory damages, of course, go up to $150,000. And in a lawsuit like this, where you're talking about commercial use of this content, commercial distribution, you're looking toward the scarier side of those numbers, probably. Right. Um, so statutory damage can get up to $150,000 if they're found to be willful. Yeah, um, it's up to 30000 if it's non-willful. Exactly. And I think uh, it ends up in the hands of the jury or the judge if it ends up not even getting to a jury. Um, and I don't think there's much sympathy for commercial enterprises who blatantly yeah. just ignore copyright law. I think yeah. I think you're looking at the higher end of it. Uh, you know, this isn't the case where uh, it's someone you can sympathize with. Although yeah, exactly. maybe they could make an argument that you know these poor prisoners are facing you know tough conditions and 
you know, little journey yeah. just helps them get through their day. And do you really think sending them James Brown is helping? <laughs> um, I, I, but yeah, they are sending Eminem, Marvin Gaye, and Stevie Wonder. I mean, so yeah, those are that's fine. Marvin Gaye, you know, uh, you got to set the mood in prison. It's hard otherwise to yeah. really, you know, uh, oh, no. get the romance going. Oh God! Okay, check please. Podcast is over. <laughs> oh man, but it, yeah, it's 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 interesting that Marvin Gaye keeps coming up in our laws in our in the lawsuits we're discussing. Anyways, he's uh, you know, you know he, the, he's not a legend. I don't think he, don't never going to go out of style. In this show. I don't think he's elsewhere in this show, but of course we've got the Blurred Lines lawsuit still ongoing, scheduled to go to trial sometime in February, and they're currently trying to hash out what they're going to present in court, whether or not, because you know, the copyright's limited to the sheet music, so how do they present the songs in a way that people can understand? It's something that's ongoing there, but so, yeah, so Marvin Gaye coming up with frightening regularity in, um, in this podcast. Well, I gotta, I gotta I say, this next it. one to me is scathing this uh, it's described in this article on amlaw litigation daily as scathing and that's the only word i keep coming back to um sirius xm as you know is being sued by flo and eddie of the turtles and i have learned more about the turtles through the course of this lawsuit than i had in about the you know the 30 years prior of my life i i now know far more than i needed to about these guys but anyways they're suing because sirius xm satellite radio provider has not been paying royalties at all for um, the sound recordings, not for the composition, but for the sound recordings of pre-1972 music. Well, pre-1972 sound recordings were not covered by federal copyright law. Long and short of it is that the uh, Copyright Act of 1909, yes, we have to go that far back, uh, made it so that for a law, for a type of work to be protected under federal copyright law, it had to be specifically added. At that time, sound recordings not particularly common, so they didn't add it to the law. It wasn't until 1972 they got around it because Congress is on the ball. That's why that. <laughs> it's not like there was a thriving industry or anything like that. No, they got on it right away. But the you know, result of that recordings is, hit in '71, and then Congress was on it in '72. They were on it, man. It was amazing. They were like super fast. Ugh. You know, it, it's really fortunate that the Beatles were able to like survive in an echo chamber until 1971 before they could put it down. Yep. We were really, really fortunate about that. Um, but the result of this is that now um, pre-1972 sound recordings covered underneath a myriad of state laws. Well. Turtles, or Flo and Eddie, I should say, are suing in various courts, one of them being New York. Now, Sirius XM got its butt slightly kicked um, in the earlier rulings and sort of called mulligan. They fired their attorneys, they brought in new staff, and they also presented a new legal theory. They brought in new case law that they thought would help them in New York. The judge, however, had other ideas about that particular piece of case law saying, in effect, that not only were they wrong about that particular piece of case law and that it doesn't support their arguments, but it wouldn't matter because it was overturned 60 years ago. That's right. We had an 11th hour new attorney coming in, you know, with their, you know, their hands raised. Have you seen this case, though? You know, it, it was Mr. the, it was the golden Beasley. key, you know, that supported their position exactly. You know, this is why we don't owe them any money. This is why public performance rights weren't protected. And, uh, you know... It turns out that they did not do their due diligence. Their case was not shepherdized, which in the legal world is a fancy term for check to see if somebody basically overruled it. Um, and Isn't so, that just like a search, basically. 
it it is, but it's it's you know it's first of all you always have to tricky. analyze what uh, someone's yeah, saying true. about it. You got to read the case that overrules it because sometimes it can be only overruled in certain in parts, capacities yeah. <laughs> or parts. It's not easy, and that's why sometimes you know a lawyer charges an arm and a leg. But you know, in my mind, some poor first or second year associate thought they had like the you know, the golden ticket. case this of their career it. and they found it and they sent it over to the partner too quickly and the partner had 30,000 cases on his desk and he says, okay, let's go forward with this one and uh, unfortunately, they they uh, they did not they didn't fare pick a winner. well. No. <laughs> so. And pick a winner. And, you know, it, it, it's very, very rare in my experience to see judges blow open arguments like this. It, it's not... Usually that's kind of the job of the opposing counsel. Um, right. You're the judge to the laying in. Well, it was a motion for reconsideration. So, yeah. um, you know, the uh, opposing counsel has the opportunity to, I, I believe in New York, um, although I wouldn't I wouldn't definitely uh, bank on this, is submit a, a brief against it. But then obviously a judge has a law clerk for a reason. Most judges have somebody who does the research for them because, you know, they never know really when to believe one brief or the other. Because uh, sometimes they have it wrong, so you got to have your own independent research. And her law clerk obviously made Long short ball. work of uh, of this uh, of this yeah. case. You know, very very short work. So it, what looked like, at the very least, Sirius XM had a hail mary play going that could turn around the game. Kind of like uh, now, the Ravens last night. Yeah, until they threw that interception. That's pretty much exactly what happened, actually. <laughs> Oh man, a Ravens fan, aren't you? No, uh, I'm oh. not really a football fan actually. And okay, I'll calm down. All the many listeners coming to burn my okay. house down. I'm Canadian, so it's okay. Yeah, well, you have Canadian football. You have the CFL, right? I, I I'm a casual fan, but you know, like most Canadians, my uh, I, I, you know, I uh, I bleed uh, NHL. You know, I'm a diehard oh, fan. <laughs> yeah, so, so sport. I can't I can't even watch NHL because I can't follow the puck. Apparently, I'm oh. not. Physically built for the, watching NHL. It just takes a few games. I'm sure you could do it. <laughs> Maybe. Um, so right. let's let's go on to this next story, which is um, between Google and the Attorney General of the great state of Mississippi. Uh, he had sent over a subpoena to them as part of an ongoing investigation into their activities um, with certain advertisement purchasers. Um, who may or may not, or according to Mississippi's Attorney General, have been connected to either uh, black market prescription uh, and other worse uh, commercial enterprises. And so he had sent them a subpoena asking basically very generally for documents. And like in most lawsuits, he got exactly that, which was something like, what do you say, 99,000 pages of uh, mm-hmm. material. And so... Um, they were in the midst of this battle. You see, I'm sorry. If I'm giving someone 99,000 pages of material, I'm going to print out an extra 1,000 pages of something just to make <laughs> it an even number. That would drive me crazy. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Well, I mean, 99,000 is a pretty score number. It wasn't 99,999 documents. <laughs> I, would, I would add definitely one page. This page intentionally left blank. Boom, drop it so, right on the top. Allegedly, uh, the Sony email hacking uh, extravaganza reveals that uh, the movie studios through the Motion Picture Association of America had apparently campaigned various state attorneys, uh, Jim Hood included, to investigate Google for 
you know, profiting from paid advertisements from black market groups. And so uh, they filed to have the subpoena thrown out because that's some major, major violations of uh, a federal law. Uh, and so um, all of a sudden, uh, the story is that he's backed off, which means that there was probably some truth. Well, he uh, he called it a time out, which, for the record, is not a legal term. Yes. There is no legal time out. He sent that it I you know to of. five years time out in your room. <laughs> there is no time out. That was my JFK. Time out is sometimes called prison, yes. but um, it, it's a very different concept. So, yeah. But, um. There wasn't only, obviously, in the subpoena, this accusation of, yeah. uh, you know, illegal uh, arguments, uh, illegal uh, lobbying, but there's also a lot of what's called preemption issues. Um, basically, uh, federal preemption law, which is that it's in the Constitution that uh, if a federal law addresses a certain issue, uh, it's preempted, which means that the state laws can't supplement that area of law. One of those is copyright. You can't have state copyright laws because the yeah. issue is preempted explicitly. And so um, Google is arguing that a lot of these um, uh, subpoenas for um, uh, uncovering documents where that Google may or may not be uh, working with black market groups who you know traffic in copyrighted works or traffic in things that are banned by the Communications Decency Act, which is another copyright slash privacy bill. The argument is that because he's a state attorney general, he doesn't have the power to go here. He, you know, this is a federal issue. It's going to take federal investigators to investigate it, which they did, by the way. And I remember reading that there's something like a $500 million settlement, right, for uh, a few years ago yeah. for Google um, doing some shady stuff with uh, ad, uh, advertisement companies who deal in uh, prescription uh, goods. Yeah, that dealt specifically with prescription drugs. So I think you're right. Yeah. And uh, the only other thing I have to say about this is uh, mullet. Um, yeah, I we're not talking. No, <laughs> yeah, mullet. One word. Yes, uh, the, uh, the 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 um, Jim Hood has a decided mullet. Mm -hmm. There's just no nice way to put that. I I mean, I'm just impressed that you could have a mullet and then be a powerful figure in government. I mean, you got to have everything else probably going on, like just on the ball. For you to have the mullet and be in high, in high state politics, I guess I'll leave. Well, it I mean, that. The, 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 the part that blows my mind, and I'm looking at the photo. We got an article here on the New York Times. The photo shows him in a very, very nice suit. Yeah, and he is. I, he's an older gentleman. I don't want to say he's like old or anything, but he's uh, obviously in his upper 50s middle or 60s. age. Yeah, upper yeah. middle age. So the salt and pepper hair going on. He's rocking it and rocking a mullet. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and he's holding up the number. Four on his finger. I have no idea what the four is about, honestly. But yeah, so it looks very out of place. But I got to be honest, it is Mississippi. So it is Mississippi. That's true. <laughs> I live like an hour away from Mississippi, so I can explain a lot by just saying it's Mississippi. <laughs> but <laughs> are there are there mullets in in uh, New Orleans? No, it's not so popular here. But you go. It, see, New Orleans is really strange. It's one of those cities where if you go like an hour in any direction of it, north, south, east, west, doesn't really matter, you will enter real redneck or coon-ass land, as we like to call it here in the New Orleans, in the New Orleans area. It, 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 the civilization fades quick. We are a little island unto ourselves. Sure. And that's the way we like it. <laughs> um. But here's, this, this next story really interested yeah. me. 
Oh, I see Calico's decided to join us. Um, there must be a buzzsaw going off, I apologize. Um, now, we talked briefly about attempts at site blocking and how they did not work particularly well, that people railed against them. And even though they've similar provisions have been passed in other countries, they have not been able to get any traction here. However, apparently, at least one organization here in the U.S. thinks it has an approach that may bring some form of content blocking to the United States, and that is the ITC, the International Trade Commission. Now, I honestly was not very familiar with this organization before these recent SPADA articles. Just right. hadn't been on my radar, but now it looks like they're going to be on my radar a lot. And it centers around a patent case, of all things, is where we're beginning our story, specifically a um, case involving a company named Clear Correct, which prints 3D clear plastic braces. Now, apparently, a lot of what they're doing is probably patent infringing. Or at least this article says outright it's patent infringing, but I'm not going to trust these journalists and just say most likely. But basically what they were doing was offshoring the actual scanning and the, the work to Pakistan, and Pakistan was beaming back the data that was being 3D printed here in the U.S. So the actual patent infringement was not a physical good, but it was being transmitted data. Now, the ITC has said, has ruled itself, basically it ruled, the ITC has ruled that the ITC has the authority to block um, infringing data, intellectual property infringing data at the border, basically, the same way it does with physical goods. Basically, if you printed a truckload of Expendables DVDs and tried to ship it into the U.S., that would right. be their job is to block it at the border. So, yeah, the ITC is a uh, administrative quasi-judicial body that handles all your – it's exactly what it sounds like. It's the International uh, Trade Commission. You know, if you uh, have a trade dispute, you go to the ITC, um, and they have the power of stopping infringing goods from coming uh, across the border. Uh, now, what this patent company – or I'm sorry, what this dental company has tried to do is kind of dance around patent laws by um, – Having uh, the, the patent covered like the the creation of these uh, models, which I guess were like exact copies of your teeth for uh, implant purposes. I'm not sure if that's exactly right, but it was something like that. And so instead of creating the the models here in the U.S., where it would, that would be an, an infringement of the patent if you're not a licensee of the person who designed this invention, they had someone do that in Pakistan and then send the actual model here. So that yeah. the actual action of the creation of the model, you know, happening yeah. somewhere else. They were sending the, uh, the 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 data to make a three D printing of it here in the U S. Exactly, basically. and so um, you know, very clever, but not uh, not not um, immune from judicial action. And so the ITC has decided yeah. that this is you know something that we could rule over, and I think this is this could potentially have massive implications. Massive impact, and I mean. And, Copyright holders still don't have the tools to fight piracy overseas. You know, um, the whole ability to uh, you know file for an injunction to block piracy sites overseas was the reason um, Sopa and Pupa died. Is because uh, Google aired their and, and I guess a, a, a public movement aired their uh, fear that this would end up blocking legitimate content if you really put the hand the power in anyone's hands to block uh, any site. Um, that isn't maybe very, very, very criminal, or I don't think anyone has has, has you know made those complaints to you know like sites that uh, traffic in the worst of uh, criminal activities. But 
uh, copyright owners still don't have really the ability to fight overseas piracy. But if this happens and they can start going to the ITC to regulate, you know, international goods that enter the country, uh, you know, it's a it's a huge, huge win for them. Yeah. And it's interesting because we talked about this with Aereo, too, but courts tend to frown upon attempts to dance around the law. Right, and that's and they, why they're and, kind of stuck in between a rock and a hard place here because they really want to stop this company from clearly, you know, stealing to this 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 3D printing of teeth uh, technology. But you know, at the same time, it's going to have to be so limited in scope in order mm-hmm. to stop really what is a massive, massive increase in their jurisdiction uh, from a pragmatic perspective that th- th- this is going to be hell of a, a dance and, and this is going to go for sure to the federal circuit. Oh, yeah, appeals, which say, is this, the, is, this would be going to the federal circuit. Uh, yeah, if I remember. the federal circuit has appellate jurisdiction over this over over decisions here. So this is going straight to the federal circuit, if not the Supreme Court. Yeah, and I would not be surprised by that. Because remember, the ITC basically ruled that the ITC has this jurisdiction. Right. That's where we're at right now. And that's a, like, the first ruling. And as you said, they're quasi um, they're, they're quasi judicial. Quasi judicial. I'm tripping over my words. It's a tough one. Quasi jurisdictional, which would make no sense whatsoever. But quasi judicial, so they have the ability to make a lot of rulings. They can rule on some things. But yeah, without a. Um, some kind of appellate court ruling, at the very least, is not going to mean a whole heck of a lot. But obviously, copyright holders, as I said, would love to tap into this and start blocking well, pirated works. I don't think. I don't. I think that if they do rule on this, you're going to. Everyone's going to file. All the content owners are going to file immediately, and so they'll probably be stayed. If if they do end up, you know, um, saying stopping this this data from coming over the over the border, which you know is just a fancy way of saying it's it's on the internet. Um, you're going to see a lot of files from copyright owners for the Pirate Bay and ISO Hunt and all those overseas. Uh, well, not the Pirate Bay unless they come back on February 1st, as some are predicting. But Right. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm just those are examples, obviously. Yeah, um, I know. I know. I'm messing with you. Uh, yeah. and, so, and so you're going to see a lot of if, – if they, if they do end up going in the way that favors uh, content owners, then you're going to see a lot of uh, decisions. Uh, I, I'm sorry, not, not decisions. You're going to see a lot of uh, filings, and then they'll probably be stayed as the appeal happens. Yeah, and it will probably go to the Supreme Court too. John, and, uh, you'll have to just give me a quick second. My my laptop's at four percent, and I didn't okay. bring my charger, so just give me a second. One second, all right. So while Evan grabs his laptop charger real fast, um, it's worth noting that obviously this isn't going to be a quick process. We're probably going to be talking about this and keeping an eye on this for at least the next year. Um, Aereo was probably the fastest I've seen a case reach the Supreme Court and get a ruling, and that took about a year and a half at least. So I don't expect anything from this immediately. Just in case the show hadn't reached the true pinnacle of professionalism that we usually attain, a 45-second video of uh, me running around this room to find my charger brought us there. And me discussing that it would probably take about a year and a half for this to get through the Supreme Court at the very least because – I think Ariel was the quickest case I've seen get to the Supreme Court and get a ruling, and that still took almost two years. So, right. you know, it, it, it's not going to be a quick process. Don't expect anything of this immediately one way or the other. This is the warning shot, if anything. Right. Uh, it, instead of winter, this is a decision is coming. Yeah, this is, exactly. Brace yourselves.
So Pharrell Williams and company. Right. The uh, global music rights organization that we talked about last month, which is the uh, company uh, that represents about 20 of the biggest songwriters in the country. Uh, now, normally songwriters are represented by two organizations called ASCAP and BMI. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are subject to something called consent de- decrees, which is basically like a fancy way of saying a law that uh, makes licenses to play the music available as a right uh, for a set amount. So the songwriters get paid a certain amount by people who play them, and they can't say, no, you can't play them. Um, and so because these two organizations were so big and powerful, you know, it, to prevent a monopoly, they basically came to this agreement. Um, with the government because they were antitrust lawsuits, et cetera, et cetera. But about 20 of the biggest songwriters have formed a new organization that deals with royalty rights, royalty uh, negotiations for these songs that they've written. Yeah. And, uh, and... so Irving Azoff's um, GMR uh, is not subject to those laws, and so now they're suing YouTube. Uh, or they have been suing YouTube because they haven't been uh, receiving the royalties that they believe they're entitled to, while YouTube believes that previous deals with those two companies, ASCAP and BMI, which these songs were under before uh, GMR was made, they believe that these previous deals are uh, still in effect. Well, and there's an issue here for YouTube and for their side of the coin here because a lot of entities like YouTube are operating currently on what are called interim agreements. Basically what you can do with ASCAP and BMI is if, hey, I want to create a YouTube or a Pandora or insert service here, you go to ASCAP BMI, you ask for a rate, they are required to give you a license pretty much right then and there. Even if you're not completely jiving on the terms of the rate and how much you should be paying. And if you two continue to squabble and it continues not to go anywhere, you can go to a rate court, which is a thing, and then hash out the ex- and then the court will decide what rates you owe. Right. But um, rate courts. YouTube and a lot. Yeah, exactly. And YouTube and uh, apparently a lot of digital companies right now are operating only on these interim agreements, which don't have necessarily any lock-ins, don't necessarily provide guarantees. And are much more limited in terms of the year to year, you know, what is protected. So that could be something that comes out here. If, if YouTube is in the middle of an interim agreement on, with ASCAP or BMI, and some of these individuals are covered by an interim agreement, then maybe their pulling out is actually allowed, and maybe their continued use is actually an infringement. It could actually be the case. So, yeah, this is this is a potential lawsuit to, that could be very disastrous for YouTube if they're not careful. Right, uh, and mixed into this is another red flag knowledge fight, which you know is the standard of knowledge written into the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, where if an internet service provider like YouTube that hosts content from third parties have you know knowledge that there's infringing material on their websites, they're basically they lose their their immunity from copyright lawsuits that they get under the ISP mm-hmm. for for which they put. Which they get free in exchange for you know putting in these notice and takedown systems, etc. And so, uh, they a notice and takedown request has been sent, but you know uh, it's not exactly in uh, conformance with exactly what you would do if someone was asking you to send yeah. a notice takedown on their on their request, or someone asked me 
you know, I'd make sure to put in the URL and, you know, all the specifics need to be there because you don't want to give the ISP any chance to dance around your request. Uh, but um, I think this is purposefully uh, ambiguous takedown request, which is that, um, you know, here's our, here's our 20,000 songs, you know, they're on your servers, take them down or we're going to sue you. And YouTube's like, you know damn well this isn't in compliance with what most courts have asked for. But I think it's purposefully um, ambiguous because uh, Erzing, uh, er, sorry, Erzing, Irvin Azoff and GMR feel like red flag knowledge exists at YouTube. Already, yeah. Right, they, which they, is they, that, they probably think it exists already. Right, the red flag knowledge is basically, is there an amount of infringement that's so you know, pervasive that, you know, there's no way you can't know. You know what's there. You know what's there and you should be taking the action on your own without any any of our notice and takedown requests to remove this uh t- this um this amount or all of the infringing uh, material. Yeah. And and basically what it looks like to me is Azolf is and and the and global music rights in general is setting this up to go to a lawsuit. They're not necessarily tr- they might be setting it up for a lawsuit to negotiate better rates it might be a negotiation tactic yeah. but they well, are definitely seem to be gearing this up and treating this as it is going to be a legal case inevitably i think so i, I mean I, I i don't think this is a litigation business model you know this, that's yeah. not what this is this is leverage to be able to get higher royalty rates because they're representing the cream of the crop you yeah. know all the best songwriters you know, you've got uh, you know, the Eagles and Pharrell, so they want... Yeah, I think Pharrell Williams has written like half of the popular rate. songs over the past five years, so... Right. So, I mean, this is... Uh, I think it may end up in court because of the relative egos that are in play here and the relative power that are that are in, that are in play here, but I certainly wouldn't say that this is a litigation business no, model. No, no. Uh, no, ASCAP and BMI are definitely not litigation business models either. And I think what Global Music Rights is doing is they're trying to simulate what they're doing, but like you said, get higher royalties, especially per song and per stream, exactly. because they 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 represent you know only the best of the best, you know, so to speak. They don't represent you know bands you've never heard of. Pretty much everyone on Global Music Rights, you've probably at least heard their name once or twice. Yep. You know, I don't, I don't, every time I see their names, I'm like, yeah, know him, know him, know her. No, it's almost no doubt that, you know, these are people, you know, these people that are going to be in demand. And so the idea is that, yeah, you can get ASCAP and BMI and you might be able to get 99% of the songs, but the 20,000 songs people really want to play on that jukebox or whatever, or play on YouTube, you got to go to Global Music Rights. Yep. They represent a big chunk of popular music and so uh they know it and that's reflected in their bargaining position yeah and then and now their legal position as well so yeah it's going to be one to follow and like i said i hope youtube's not going in this too recklessly because music licensing is difficult it is complicated and it's large it's partly complicated because of those consent decrees um right which is why you said that there's an appetite for kind of revisiting the whole thing yeah and that's one of the areas that you know we're seeing possible reform on, so I guess we'll see what shakes out. But it's um, yeah, it is a it's a messy issue, and I hope YouTube, like I said, isn't taking this too too lightly or being too dismissive about it. Okay, well, Kim.com down in New Zealand, 
almost three years ago exactly to the day. I think it was like the 12th the actual raid happened. We're recording this on the 11th, so it's almost to the day this happened. Um, police in New Zealand raided Kim.com's mansion as part of a multinational effort to arrest him and to shutter Mega Upload, which was at the time the largest cyberlocker site. Since then, Kim.com has been fighting extradition to the U.S., we might, maybe, potentially, conceivably, could get an answer to that question this summer, if we're lucky and well-behaved, and eat our Wheaties. Um, but in the meantime, there were some inconsistencies, shall we say, in the warrants used to launch the raid. And Kim.com and his attorneys had challenged the raid, saying that the raid itself and the evidence gathered from it was not legal. That matter made it all the way to the New Zealand Supreme Court, which has ruled in a split decision, but has ruled that the raid was legal. That the that, yes, there were issues, but they were not so egregious as to represent a miscarriage of justice, basically. Right. So uh, this, this, this boils down to a Fourth Amendment issue, which uh, is the part of the Bill of Rights that prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures and requires any warrant to be judicially sanctioned and supported by probable cause. Well, well the New Zealand so, equivalent thereof, we should say. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, in the U.S., uh, and similar like in New Zealand, the warrant has to be specific. Not, you know, this is exactly what we're looking for in this part of the house, it, but it has to be close. You know, it's got to be why you're going in there, why you believe you have probable cause to go in there, what you expect to find, etc. And so, um, apparently in New Zealand, not only do you have to have all of this, but you also have to have... Um, uh, an unfair prejudice to the defendant as a result of not having it. So uh, the New Zealand Supreme Court felt that even though it wasn't specific enough uh, and the warrant didn't you know, detail exactly uh, to, up to standard why they're going in there, uh, Kim didn't suffer an unfair prejudice as a result. And uh, you know what, I'm not really sure what that means, um, but you know, the, the end game is that Another loss for uh, Kim.com. Yeah, and he's been suffering a lot of losses lately. He lost his attorneys, uh, most recently suffered setbacks in Hong Kong. Um, yes, they're revisiting, but under um, the issue of his uh, property owned in Hong Kong, but under very limited terms that are not likely to get it re released. Um, so, yeah, he's been suffering a string of defeats lately. But, you know, the big question for him is going to come in June, I think it is June, um, when they will rule whether or not he is extradited to the United States, provided there isn't yet another postponement to that, because it's been postponed, I think, like six times or so. That's right. For various In fact, the most recent postponement was because his new attorneys needed a moment to get caught up. So It's a lot to get caught up on. This I can only imagine the amount of paperwork this case has produced is mind-boggling. I would not want to be locked into a locked in a room with it because I would need a need a very large room, and b um, would might be killed by falling paper. Um, so neither of those things sound particularly pleasant. But yeah, so this is a but this is a potentially significant loss because he was hoping to have a lot of the evidence that was gained from that raid thrown out. Right. 
and this law prevents that from happening, meaning it will be presented both at his extradition hearing and any other court actions that take place in New Zealand, whether it's criminal or possibly even civil action against him, because he's already been sued by the uh, movie studios and the record labels in New Zealand, but those cases are on hold pending the outcome of the criminal investigation. So now, don't never forget, even if Kim.com does defeat the criminal investigation, he's just got a very large civil one waiting for him in the wings. Think O.J. Simpson and what happened with him. So, the the first time, not the second. Yep. You know what I mean? <laughs> Man, no it's comment. Bad you have to it's, it's bad when you have to distinguish between the legal trouble someone's had. I'm just saying. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's true. Um, well, so, uh, I've been trying to think of a good pun to transition over the next yeah. story. Have you got anything? Well, I would say we've bonded over this case over the years, yeah. but it seems that things are settling down, and <sighs> I guess we're just going to have to move on. Yeah, you know what? That pun was so bad, you deserve to be assassinated. Hey, uh, that's probably Speaking of assassinations, James Bond. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was bad. Um, yeah, it was. <laughs> uh, so we, there was a case between uh, MGM and Universal about uh, the copyright related to the uh, man himself, James Bond. Uh, Universal was planning to create, which just from a personal interest perspective, I think would be a super cool movie, uh, a uh, origin story for MI6. Origin stories have been crushing it at the box office you know, for a decade now, Batman, Superman. And uh, so this was going to be World War One, post World War One, MI six origins, and uh, MGM, you know, obviously as the owner of the copyright to James Bond, was not happy, and uh, you know, uh, sued in copyright because uh, they got their hands on the screenplay, which uh, you know it was an interesting timing in, of the suit because they hadn't even actually greenlit the project yet. So the only actual yeah. violation is the creation of a script, which is. You know, technically a reproduction violation because, you know, when you own the copyright to a certain world, you know, uh, and you uh, – and then you – someone else writes a script in that world, you know, it's an infringement of a copyright which is usually justified by fair use if it's just like a fan fiction or something like that, you know, if you're well, just like uh, a person writing well, for your own interest. But since this is a movie, uh, probably not fair use, so – yeah, and that's just it. Fan fiction is, a, is actually an interesting thing to talk about here because fan fiction is typically tolerated because it's not usually for profit. Even if it is an infringement, when it is an infringement, it's not sued over. It's not something that people are looking to drag into court because no one wants to sue their fans anyway. Nope. But when you take a script and you write it and then you for the express purpose of selling it and then someone buys it for the likely purpose of making it into a movie, you go a bit beyond what we think of as traditional fan fiction. Hmm. Yep. And that's exactly what uh, happened with this case. You know, to give you an idea, I think this was like the cool part of the story is that uh, the, uh, the, the, the script had its, uh, you know, I guess, homage moments when their main character, Alex Duncan, introduced himself as Duncan. Alex Duncan, you know, which of course is the classic Bond, James Bond. Mm -hmm. But uh, it seems like they've come to a settlement here without, uh, without, bringing the, uh, the, the terms, uh, you know, to the light of day. So we'll, uh, was, I guess we'll see a movie or maybe we won't see a movie, and that'll let us know what terms were, uh, were reached. It's always fascinating for me, though, with this lawsuit because we usually hear about MGM suing startup or, you know, some small company or, you know, Universal sues individual file share. Here we had two heavyweights 
going at each other yep. in a pretty significant way. And um, it seemed like this one was destined to go a pretty long time. But the judge in the case basically said that the case can move forward. And that, as you said, there were enough homage moments or whatever to um, allow the case to move forward. That there was signs that could be considered infringement in the script. You know, it, it's unclear what the terms of the lawsuit are, or the terms of the settlement are, rather, but it seems likely that they included, okay, your story can include this, this, and this, but not this. You know, they can't, you know what I mean, the various elements that can and cannot be included in the final film. Because that was always, um, that was always Universal's claim was, hey, you know, we've barely started this, this film's going to look a lot different. You know, you come on, scripts, you know, they're they're barely even a jumping off point. Right. Which is actually pretty accurate. But, so, you know, th their argument was, you can't sue us yet, it's too early. But MGM pointed out, and, and MGM's partner, Dan Jack, I believe is the name of the company, is actually holds the um, rights to the James Bond franchise, basically said, uh, you still have an infringing script in your hands, <laughs> basically. That was, was the counter-argument. Yep. So, um... Why was Section 6 afraid of 007? Uh, why? Because 007 is protected by MGM and Dan Jack and will sue them. <laughs> Alright, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that was, that's the best one I've got. Okay, that's, If you want a better pun than that, you've got to go to a different podcast. Uh, I, think, um, I think we'll put the puns to rest. Yes, uh, thank, thankfully. Um, but yeah, that's all I think I have on that story. That's all the news I think I have. Is there anything all... else we missed? Anything else going on that's been interesting to you? And, you know, not too much. I've uh, started working with the Association of American Publishers. I'm doing some writing for them. Um, very, very nice people. Had a chance to meet with them. Uh, you know, they represent a lot of the interests of authors, and I'm happy to, uh, to start contributing with them. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah. beautiful office here in D.C. And so uh, that's, uh, that's some news on my part. But, uh, the, you know, I've, I've that, got to you know. I've got to say, I've worked with every type of copyright holder in some capacity or another, but consistently publishers and writers have been among the most nice and most wonderful. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is. I, I, maybe being alone in a room to write all day just makes you a nice person. Who knew? Yeah, you know, when, when another human comes around, you're like, oh, let's be friends. I've got to, yes, we've got to be friends immediately. Maybe that's yeah. it. But yeah, I, I don't think I've ever met a mean person from the publishing industry in any way, shape, or form, so I'm happy about that. I'm, I'm glad... You're getting the chance to work with them. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, on that note, everyone, my name is Jonathan Bailey. I am from the website Plagiarism Today, which can be found at plagiarismtoday.com. You can find me at all the social networking sites at username Plagiarism Today. And uh, my name is Evan Sherris. Uh, you can find me online on Twitter uh, at Evan Sherris, which is right. And you need a you need a site. We got we got to find something for you to plug. Right. <laughs> Uh, eventually, I'll get there eventually, and maybe this will be our thing that every time we end a podcast, you tell me that I need that, and then every time yeah. I'll say, eventually, 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 and then eventually you'll leave the podcast and start a site, and that's how it'll work. Um, well, on that note, everyone, thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you guys next week. We would like to give a very special thank you to Pit X for contributing the copyright 2.0 show theme song entitled "Me Boo." It is available under the Creative Commons by Attribution License and can be found at ccmixter.org by searching for the word me boo. Thank you very much, PitX. Hey, 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 hey.